Nehemiah chapter 6. So Nehemiah chapter 6, welcome to week 12 of our Ezra-Nehemiah series that we are calling Renovation. These two books stand as testimonies to the truth that God keeps his people and God keeps his word. And the books of Ezra and Nehemiah tell a story of a restoration, a story of how God's people started over following failure, following their disobedience to God. And Nehemiah, of course, is a book that highlights a building and a rebuilding. Where this book tells of how God's people returned from exile, from Babylon, how they rebuilt the broken down walls of Jerusalem. And more than that, it tells of God's people being rebuilt according to God's word, which is what we're going to see starting next week. But through these books, we are watching God direct history according to what he'd already promised, according to his word. Because according to Numbers 23, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. So all that we're reading is in accordance to what God had promised he would do. In the last two weeks, we have been in Nehemiah 4 and Nehemiah 5, seeing the people of Jerusalem now in the fires of affliction, not only opposition without, but also suffering within. And just remember the law of proportion that we talked about a few weeks ago. When it comes to Nehemiah's passion, we get one verse. When it comes to Nehemiah's prayer, we get six verses. When it comes to Nehemiah's planning, we get eight verses. When it comes to Nehemiah's preparation, we get 11 verses. Yet when it comes to the opposition against Nehemiah and the people of God, we get three straight chapters. I mean, the reality is since humanity's fall in the Garden of Eden, God's kingdom work has been done in a hostile environment. That is where we are called. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament depict the life of God's people, even our life, as one of daily struggle against a relentless enemy, an enemy who never stops. And the reality that we have seen and we'll see again today is that no matter how great your passion is for something that the Lord has called you to or put on your heart, no matter how passionate your prayers are in asking God to fulfill what he has called you to do, no matter how much attention you put into planning and preparing, and no matter how many people you are able to rally around you, the one thing you must prepare your hearts for more than anything else is that the opposition that will come. For nothing attracts opposition more than a vision from God and a work that we do for God. When we begin to do a work for God, there will be opposition. It reminds me of the words of J.I. Packer, who says this, The real theme of Nehemiah 4-6 through 6 is spiritual warfare. And Nehemiah's real opponent, his real critic, the grumbler who occupied his attention directly, was Satan whose name means adversary and who operates as the permanent enemy of God, God's people, and God's praise. We think of Satan as our spiritual enemy, and so he is. But we need to realize that the reason he hates humankind and seeks our ruin is because he hates God, his and our creator. And I love this. He said, he, Satan, is not a creator himself, only a destroyer. When God initiates something for his praise, Satan is always there trying to keep pace with him, planning ways of spoiling and frustrating the divine project. 
So Nehemiah ran into opposition the moment he set his heart to obey God's command. And it's amazing how opposition can come and kill a God-given vision. Here in Nehemiah, as in many other places in Scripture, we learn that Satan has two main ways of working. We see this all throughout Scripture. The first way that Satan works is, as Peter says, he is like a prowling lion seeking someone to devour. So the first way that Satan works is he comes with bared fangs and sharp claws with evil intent trying to promote fear in us. But the second way that Satan can come is, as 2 Corinthians 11 says, as an angel of light, meaning he can come with enticing promises. Satan can come with flattering words, assuring us that what he proposes will cost us nothing, thus trying to deceive us. Yet in either way that Satan chooses to come, whether it be through fear or through flattery in our own lives, the goal of Satan is always the same, destruction. He wants to destroy us. Satan wants to bring about death, he wants to bring about destruction, and he wants to bring about hopelessness in our lives. And this was the reality in Nehemiah's day, and let me just break the news to us. It's the reality in our day as well. It's what Satan still wants to do in our lives. So let's jump into the text this morning, Nehemiah 6, and see the ongoing work of the enemy in the life and work of Nehemiah, which also parallels to the work of the enemy in our lives even today. So if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's word. We're going to read verses 1 through 19 of Nehemiah 6, and it begins this way. Now when Sambala and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sambala and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come and let us meet together at Hecaphirim and the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Samballot, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel, and that is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work, and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, Should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. 
For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sambalat, O my God, according to these things that they did. And also the prophetess, Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by an oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era, and his sons Jehoanan had taken the daughter of Mishalem, the daughter of Berechiah, as his wife. Also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we think about today continuing hostility that we see in Nehemiah 6 and also hostility that we know in our lives, but also, Lord, we see today the heart of a finisher. And Lord, we know your word has promised that you will finish what you start. But Lord, we have to cooperate with you in that. And we pray today that we would see the beauty of Nehemiah's heart, a heart that finished, and that we would, by your grace and by your mercy, by your help, take on that heart to be our heart, that we would finish, God, the things that you have called us to, that we would not come down off the the wall, the work that you have given to strengthen our hands, God. Encourage our hearts. Speak, O God, in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. So the wall is basically complete. The only thing left is to hang the gates. And Nehemiah and the people were just days away from seeing the work that God had given to them completed. Yet, they were at probably one of the most dangerous points in the mission. Did you know that one of the most dangerous times in the work of God is when that work is almost complete? That is one of the most dangerous times when the novelty of the vision has worn off, when the people are absolutely exhausted, when all that's left is just the small things to be done. And in those last remaining moments, it is so easy for us to get distracted. Distracted with details, distracted by past successes, distracted by complaints, and even negativity. And sure enough, Nehemiah was about to be the target of an all-out, last kind of attack against him. This was either going to end in the work being stopped, or it was going to end in the work being completed. And praise God, we know how it ends. But I want us today to unpack Two, yes, you heard that correctly, only two truths, but they are a lot to unpack of the heart of a finisher. And as I said before, praise God that we know that God is a finisher. He finished what he starts, and may we do so as well. So number one is as a heart, or as an individual that had a heart to finish, Nehemiah, his heart endures against all opposition. So the heart of a finisher endures against all opposition opposition. What we know from previous weeks is that there had already been many attacks against the work of God and sometimes the enemy uses the same strategy again and again and again because the enemy knows that all of us have our breaking point. 
we have our points by which we give in, but at other times the enemy will change tactics. Yet the goal of the enemy is always the same, to stop the work of God in us, to stop the work of God that we are doing for the Lord. And notice how tactics are, are changing here, yet the desire remains the same. Let me show you kind of the four ways, the four tactics that the enemy used here, but also in our own lives. It's true of us. You'll see on the screen, the enemy desires to distract us. The enemy desires to distract us. We see this in verses 1 through 4. Sambala and Geshem, as we see on the screen, sent to me saying, Come, let us meet together in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. Just think about the plan. Stop the leader and the work will stop. Stop the leader and the work will stop. They wanted the building to stop. They wanted Nehemiah down off the wall. They wanted to lure him to a place called Ono and possibly kill him. Sambalat and Tobiah, Geshem had tried everything. They're pretty sick of this wall by now and they're pretty sick of Nehemiah. They're sick of what he's doing. So now they send words saying, hey, let's meet together. Let's iron out our differences. And thankfully, Nehemiah suspected foul play. Why would they want him a day's or one-day journey away from the work? Why would they want him that far away? Stop the leader. Stop the work. Stop the leader. Stop the work. And I love his answer. I love his answer in verse 3. I am doing a great work. I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Four times Nehemiah says no. Kind of funny. Four times he says no to going to oh no. And the reality is this. We must also say oh no to our oh no's. To those places that want to distract us and take us away from the work Charles Swindoll said this, one of the marks of Christian maturity is the ability to say no without explanation. Just no. No. And, and let me add this. We, we must live a life as Christians out of conviction, not of guilt. Conviction comes from the Holy Spirit. Guilt comes from people. What people are trying to convince us to do. We need to live based on convictions that we have based on the Spirit of God and the Word of God, not based on the guilt of other people. And maybe, just maybe, we don't have to worry like Nehemiah did about people plotting to kill us because we're doing the work of the Lord, but I believe one of the most dangerous distractions for us today are the good opportunities that will often present themselves in order to pull us away from God's best. Did you know that one of the, the greatest enemies of God's best in our lives are all the good things that present themselves to us? All the good things that present themselves that we do me, do these things, do, do this, do that. They're all good, but God has called us to something greater. And if we're not careful, we'll get sidetracked doing all of those things. Listen, are there things in your life that persistently distract you from what God has called you to do? If you're a student, God has called you to honor him in your studies. If you're an employee, God has called you to honor him and how you serve your employer. If you're an employer, the same way. If you're a spouse, God has called you to honor him in your marriage. If you're a parent, God has called you to honor him in your home. If you're a child, God has call you to honor him and obeying and honoring your parents. And if you are his, 
which most of you would say you are, God has called all of us to honor him in all that we do, in every interaction, in every decision, with every breath that we take, we are to honor him. Oh, how often we get distracted from that which we are called to do. So the enemy desires to distract us, and then the enemy desires to discredit us. So the enemy desires to discredit us, and we see this in verses 5 through 9. It says in verse 5, In the same way, Samballot, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. So if you've been following the story of Nehemiah with us, you know that the criticism wasn't a new thing for Nehemiah. Criticism was kind of an old thing, yet this time things were different because now he was the target. So on this fifth attempt, Samballot issues an open letter spreading rumors about what the Jews were trying to do, what Nehemiah was, the reason why he was really wanting to rebuild the wall. And in those days, letters were written either on papyrus or on leather. The letter would be rolled up, would be tied, and then would be sealed with clay. But when we read verse 5, it tells us this letter was different. So Sam Ballot sent this letter, and he purposefully neglected to seal the letter because here's what he knew. I'm not going to seal it because I'm going to let people run with it, and the people who run with it will be able to read it, and then they will be able to spread the news of what I'm accusing Nehemiah of to other people. You know, for the enemy, there is nothing like dropping the germs of rumors and watching the virus spread. That's what the enemy does. The enemy drops all these little germs of rumors and then watch the virus just spread. And how would you react if you were Nehemiah? Instead of chasing rumors meant to stop the work, Nehemiah turned his attention to God and prayed to God. I love his prayer in verse 9. He says this. It says this, for they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work. So Nehemiah is saying they wanted our hands to stop working. And then Nehemiah prays, but now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Nehemiah recognizes they want his hands to stop working. So Nehemiah prays even harder to God. God, strengthen my hands. And please hear this. Nothing attracts critics more than a vision from God. Yet the best way to silence your critics is to complete the task. Finish the task that God has given to you. Finish what God has placed before you. Even as the enemy tries to discredit us. And then third, the enemy desires to deceive us during the work. The enemy desires to deceive us. We read about this in verses 10 through 13. It says in verse 10, Shemaiah said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple. So when Nehemiah's enemies couldn't distract, couldn't discredit him, they tried to use his faith in God to trick him. So Nehemiah is called to the house of Shemaiah, who proves to be a false prophet. Yet what he says seems very logical. Shemaiah says, some people are out to kill you and are out to get you and they're going to kill you. And Nehemiah certainly believed that to be true. They wanted to kill him. But then this man suggests that they hide themselves in the temple. And once again, I love Nehemiah's response because Nehemiah says, Should a man like me run away? Should I run away? Nehemiah discerned two flaws in Shemaiah's so-called prophecy. First, 
God would hardly ask Nehemiah to run away from the work when the work was about to be done. Nehemiah understood God's not calling me to run away from the work. He's calling me to finish the work. But secondly, no true prophet would, ask, would ever ask someone to do what was contrary to the law of God. In Numbers 3, in Numbers 18, only priests were allowed to go in the temple. So if Nehemiah, not being a priest, entered the temple, he would desecrate the temple and he would bring himself under the judgment of God. So what Nehemiah does is he says, listen, I am not going to disobey God by trying to be safe. I'm not going to let safety get in the way of me obeying the Lord. And let me just say this. How did Nehemiah know that this prophet was not sent by God? The answer is he knew the scriptures. He knew what the Bible said. Did you know that you can know the will of God? The word of God tells us the will of God. And when people tell us to do things or people say, I've got a word from God for you, the first thing we should do is make sure that word lines up with this word. For if it doesn't line up with this word, it's not from God. It is not from him. So Nehemiah knew the scriptures. So Nehemiah said, good try. I'm not going to fall for it. I'm going to trust what the word of God says. But the enemy tries to deceive us in so many different ways. We must know the word of God. And then the fourth tactic here is that the enemy desires to destroy us and the work. So the enemy wants to destroy us. And what we see throughout this chapter points forward to what Jesus would say when he came in John 10. When Jesus said, the thief comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. We see it here. The enemy wanted to harm Nehemiah. The enemy wanted to destroy Nehemiah and the work that God, God had called Nehemiah to. But the enemy doesn't stop. I think of the words of Luke 4.13. This is right after Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by Satan. And Luke 4.13 says this. When the devil had ended every temptation, he, meaning the devil, departed from Jesus. Hear this until an opportune time. It doesn't just say Satan just walked away and was done. No, he walked away until another time. Meaning, don't miss this, the devil never quits. He never quits. He never stops. He's never going to give up. Revelation says that he knows his time is short. He will continue on. In fact, I think of the events of, of 1 Samuel chapter 4, tells an event of Israel fighting the Philistines. And the Israelites foolishly decided they were going to bring the ark of the Lord from the tabernacle to them on the battlefield. And when they brought the, the ark to themselves, they immediately had this false sense of hope that, yay, now we're going to win because we have this good luck charm. And it says they shouted so loud that the earth actually shook. Well, the Philistines, of course, heard this shouting from far off, and they inquired as to what was going on. And they found out that the ark was with the people, and it says that they were immediately filled with fear. But guess what? They didn't immediately surrender. In fact, in 1 Samuel 4, 9, it says this, that the Philistines said to each other, Take courage, be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves of the Hebrews. Be men and fight. I mean, the Philistines, enemies of the people of God, the ark of the Lord was with Israel. They were cheering. Philistines were fearful. They should have just surrendered, but no, they fight. 
And here's the point. The enemy will never surrender. The enemy's not going to surrender. The enemy will fight. And the enemy wants to destroy the work that God has started in us and the work that God is doing through us. The enemy wants to destroy that. And oftentimes we let him. We let the work of God stop in us. We let the work of God stop through us. Yet God wants to continue. Think about this. Because the conspiracy did not lead to the destruction of the work, we're able to celebrate the better outcome. Praise be to God. Meaning, the heart of a finisher endures against all opposition, but also the heart of a finisher perseveres until completion. So this is the second most beautiful point. The heart of a finisher perseveres until completion. Just look back here. Look back to Nehemiah 3, or verse 3, excuse me. Nehemiah says, I'm doing a work. I'm doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave to come down to you? What an answer. What an answer. Nehemiah says, I can't come down. One of the most helpful things that we can do to resist temptation is to remember that God has called us all. If you are his, God has called you to a great task. This is true of every believer in Christ. You have a work. I don't care how young or how old you are in the Lord. You have a tremendous work to do for him. A work that's accomplished by the help of God. A work that brings glory to God. We shouldn't give allegiance to anything else. But what God wants to do in us. In fact, I read this week about a missionary in China. Missionary from the U.S. and his abilities were so outstanding that one of the American companies in China wanted to hire him. So they offered him an attractive job title with an attractive salary to match, but he turned them down. He told them that God had called them to China to be a missionary, and that's what he was going to do. So they came back with a better title and a better offer. He again told them, no, finally they came back with a great title, and they doubled the original offer. Finally, he said to them, and I love these words, he said, it's not your salary that's too little, it's your job that's too small. Your job is too small. This is essentially what Nehemiah said here. He has a great work, and he is not going to forsake that work that God had given him for anything else. I ran across a great word this week from Dr. F.B. Meyer, a great Bible teacher in the last century. And listen to what he says. He says, O children of the great king, let us pray that we may know the grandeur of our position before him, the high calling with which we have been called, the vast responsibilities with which we are entrusted, the great work of cooperating with God in kingdom work. Heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, called to sit with Christ in the heavenlies, risen, ascended, crowned with him, sitting with Christ far above all principality and power. How can we go down? Down to the world that rejected him. Down to the level of the first Adam from which at so great cost we have been raised. Down to the quarry from which we were hewn and the hole of the pit whence we were digged no it cannot be what he's saying is this in the words of nehemiah we can't go down can't go down we can't go 
back. The work is too great. The cost is too high. We cannot come down from the work that God has called us to. I think it's important for us to see how Nehemiah handled this opposition when he became the target. He handled the opposition by seeking truth and by praying. Just think about those two words, truth and prayer. Truth and prayer. The greatness of the work is that we have the privilege of knowing God through his word. We know truth. We have truth. And we were able to commune with God through his word and through prayer. We're able to commune with God, which begs the question, are you focused on the work of God within you and the work that God has called you to do? Or are you focused on the work of man without? Are you focused on everything else or are you focused on what God has called you to Listen, we can give ourselves, all of us can give ourselves to so many things. And yet at the end of our lives, we can be guilty of neglecting the things that God has called us to do. That's why we're called in 2 Peter 3 to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ to grow. And then tucked away at the end of this chapter, beginning at verse 15, with very little fanfare, is the completion of this work. Despite the threats from the outside, despite the threats from the inside, God worked in his people to accomplish this task, and the walls were rebuilt in 52 days. As we said from Nehemiah 1 and 2, four months of prayer led to a almost two-month work, but it was that foundation of prayer that helped us get to this point and here's the beauty of it all what we see in verse 15 to 16 you see on the screen it says now the wall was finished in 52 days and when all of our enemies heard of it they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God so everyone now knows it was God who did this it was God's help the walls completed were a testimony to God Jerusalem's enemies doubted them every step of the way. They mocked their work. In fact, they even said, let them keep building the wall and a fox will walk over it and all of it will crumble. Jerusalem's enemies were prideful, but now in verse 16, their arrogance and their unbelief is gone. They now are standing there looking at what God had done and they are fearful. They are fearful at what this God is able to do. The pride of the enemy has now disappeared. And they were the ones who were exposed. They were the ones who have now been discredited. God did what only God could do. God finished the work. Now, here in this story, think about this. Nehemiah and the task of, of rebuilding the walls. When we think about it all, we see that when God is up to something, when God is moving in our lives, all fame and all glory will go to him. In the end, in the end, the people understood, the enemies understood, it wasn't Nehemiah, it wasn't the people, it was God. There's a reason that verse 16 doesn't say they perceived that this work had been done with the help of Nehemiah. No, Nehemiah knew that this was God's victory, this was God's task, this was God's mission, therefore God gets the glory. Let me say this, and please write this down if you haven't heard me say this a hundred times already. The one who gives all the grace gets all the glory. The one who gives all the grace 
gets all the glory. God had given all grace to Nehemiah and his people. Therefore, Nehemiah in this moment is declaring that God deserves unending glory, unending praise. This is what he will get. And I love it that there's an even greater picture here. As we taught last week, when Jesus came to this exact city some 500 years later, Jesus faced external opposition. That when Jesus first came, he was the subject of a manhunt. At his birth, Herod tried to kill all male children. When Jesus grew up, and began his ministry, the external opposition continued from the scribes, from the Pharisees, from other leaders. Meanwhile, Jesus also experienced internal conflict as his disciples fought over who would have the greatest position, who could be second in his kingdom. And then the personal attacks came. Those outside began to spread rumors that Jesus was a glutton. He was a drunk. They said he did miracles by the power of Satan. They said that he was coming to try to take over or lead a rebellion against the king of, of Rome, against Caesar himself. And then one of Jesus' own disciples betrayed him for the price of a slave. And the question becomes, why did Jesus put himself through all that? And the answer is this, for the greater work of saving us. For the work of saving us, Jesus suffered for our gain. What we read in Nehemiah 4, 5, and 6 is that Nehemiah suffered for the sake of building the walls to protect the city for them to live in. Yet in a much greater way, so much greater, Jesus suffered to gain entrance for us into a heavenly city. Nehemiah suffered to protect an earthly city. Jesus suffered so that we could enter into a heavenly city. There's no getting in without Jesus. May we understand that. So here's the question for us today. Have you entered by faith, by faith in Jesus, have you entered into the work done for you by, by Christ? The work that Jesus said when he died on the cross, it is finished. Have you entered into that work? Have you turned from your sin? Have you turned to Jesus, trusting him as Savior and Lord. Let me say this, and I'm going to be very clear here. We are saved by grace alone, and we are saved through faith alone. But let me also say this. Faith that saves will never be alone. Meaning we're not saved by works, but we are saved for works. So if you are truly saved, your faith, your saving faith will never be alone. There will always be works attached to it. How do I know that? Because brothers and sisters, hear this. We have a work to accomplish. You have a work to accomplish. If you are here as a child of God and you are breathing, God has a work for you to do. Are you at this moment accomplishing the work that God has given to you? Or are you at this moment, have you come down from the work? Have you come down from the wall? Are you off the wall? The truth is, is that the work that earned our salvation, Jesus' work, is completed. But the work within our salvation continues. We still have a work to do. And let me just say this. Remind us again, the enemy's work also will never stop. We must not come down. We must continue in the work. Even when critics come, come after us, even when the enemy puts us in his crosshairs, we must continue by faith in the one 
that he who began a good work in us, hear this, will finish it. What God has started, God will finish. As we work with him, as we cooperate with him, as we let him do his work in and through our lives, may we have the heart of a finisher. May the heart of Nehemiah be our heart in finishing what God has placed before us. Or maybe this is a good day to start the work. If you're not doing the work, this is a good day to start. This is a good day to to pick up the tool and begin to work for the Lord. I'm going to go ahead and ask you to stand. And we're going to call the musicians, Brother Frank Ford, entering this time of invitation and consecration. And let us pray in this moment. Father God, we rejoice in you. We praise you. We thank you for just who you are your goodness, your mercy, your grace, Lord, that you finish what you start. Lord, help us to also be a people by your grace, by your mercy, by your power, with your help and strength. Help us to finish the things that you have called us to. Lord, your word tells us we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, but that same chapter in Ephesians 2 also says that we are your workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which have been prepared beforehand. God, you have a work for us to do. Not only making your great name known in this world, you have tasks for us to accomplish as your children to honor you, Lord, in all that we do. God, help us to give ourselves to that task and to say to the the world around us, "It's it's not the salary that's, too little, it's the job that's too small, Lord, that we have a greater task. And we can do that task in every field of work that we're in, in every place in life that we are in, we can bring glory and honor to your name. Help us to live, God, for your glory. You have given all the grace. You still deserve all the glory. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.